Are you a hunter or an outdoor enthusiast? Take your love for firearms to the next level with Goat Guns. Our miniatures are an ideal addition to your hunting gear or cabin decor. Each model is meticulously crafted, capturing the essence of legendary firearms. Celebrate your passion for the outdoors by displaying these stunning pieces. With Goat Guns, you can showcase your love for hunting and firearms in a unique and artistic way. Explore our collection now and embrace your outdoor spirit at GoatGuns.com. September 24th, 2001, the body of 40-year-old Gina Wilson-Green is found inside of her home on Stanford Avenue near Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Police were mystified at first as there was no sign of forced entry into the home, and at first glance, it did not appear as though anything had been taken. It was found that Green had been raped before being strangled to get death. Later, police realized that Green's cell phone and purse were missing from the scene. Both items were laid and recovered down an alleyway. Police began searching for Green's killer. They were stymied in these efforts, however, because unbeknownst to them, there were other murderers active in the Baton Rouge area at this time. One such man, Sean Vincent Gills, would be captured the next year, although the crimes they were currently looking at would continue on. At the time, however, police believed they only had one killer on their hands, and they set about looking for him. A white man, in his late 20s to mid 30s. Eventually, this information would reach the public and would lead to a whole new slew of problems, as the man that they were looking for was not white and had, in fact, been arrested on a number of occasions for stalking and voyeurism. This is the death cast, and this is the story of Derek Todd Lee, also known as the Baton Rouge Serial Killer. Hello, and welcome to the DeathCast. I am your host, best-selling author, Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to look into the life and crimes of Derek Todd Lee. A couple of quick show notes before we get into it. This is actually episode 49. I was mistaken on the numbering. I thought we were going to hit episode 50 this week. Also, I apologize that there was no episode last week. Life events happened, and I was unable to carve out the time to sit down and record. If you would like to follow me on social media, that would be 
Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and me. Just search for Ian Top Author. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Corpse Creek. If you would like to find out everything that is going on in the world of both the Deathcast and in the literary world of my books, consider going over to CorpseCreekPublishing.com. That's my official website. While you're there, please sign up for the mailing list. There's a number of different projects that are currently brewing. That's the best way to find out what is going on and when. Also, if you'd like to help with this show, please consider clicking on the donate button. You know, buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes if you are so inclined. I'd like to thank those of you who have, namely Josh from Maryland, Kevin B from Concord, California, and Brian from Odessa, Texas. All three of them went to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and clicked on the donate button. I appreciate it, guys. If you are interested in looking into any of my books, you can find them on the website or on Amazon.com. There are currently five books out. The Blood Gods Trilogy, The House of Silver Doors, and The Throwaway Girls of Olympia. However, I have a new book coming out on November 30th of this year. My sixth novel being published under my own name is going to be released, Maggie. More on that as we get closer to the release date. Now that all of the various show notes are out of the way, get yourself something to drink, sit back in a chair, kick back, relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. So as you heard in the opening, we're going to be looking at the crimes of Derek Todd Lee. Now, Lee is a bit of an enigma so far as serial killers go, at least from everything I have seen and read over the years, in that he stalked his victims for a period of time before deciding to move. And not only that, the police putting out incorrect information allowed him to go and continue his killing spree. He was one of those killers who kind of fell through the cracks for a number of years in the true crime community. If you knew about him, you knew about him, but if you didn't, it was very likely that you were not going to hear his name mentioned. However, with the extreme commercialization that has taken place in regards to true crime over the last five or six years. He, like most other serial killers, has been reported on fairly extensively. Although, unfortunately, some of the things that I have seen try and paint him in almost a victim-like light. 
which couldn't be anything further from the truth. Lee was a fairly brazen and vicious killer, and his upbringing should play no part in how we view him. Another interesting thing about the crimes that Lee committed is that many serial killers target those who are at the fringes of society, that is to say, prostitutes and drug addicts, people who are really under the radar of normal society. Whereas Lee would go out and actively stalk and hunt women who were in a much different financial world than he himself was. Lee predominantly targeted fairly well-to-do white women, which throws out the idea that someone from another race would be noticed in a neighborhood whose residents were predominantly of another race. After the September 24, 2001 murder of 40-year-old Gina Wilson-Green, the police began looking for a suspect, as well as witnesses who had seen anything, although unfortunately they didn't find much at the beginning. On January 14th of the following year, 2002, a married 21-year-old by the name of Geraldine DeSoto was found lying in a pool of blood inside of her Baton Rouge home. Now, DeSoto was found by her husband, who was quickly listed by police as a suspect in the case. And this is something that happens quite often because most of the time when a murder happens, the perpetrator is usually someone that is close to the victim. Now, the police put a lot of effort into trying to get DeSoto's husband to confess to this particular crime. DNA what evidence was collected at this crime scene as it was from the earlier crime. And I know people are thinking, well, why weren't they able to just link the two sets of DNA together, as you see so often in television shows? Real world doesn't work that way, particularly back in the early 2000s, where DNA evidence was still a very largely untried commodity. They also did not have any of the databases that they have today where they can put in a suspect's DNA and get a match for it on other crimes, although Lee would be linked to other crimes for which he was not convicted by his DNA. At the time of these first two known murders, however, all they had was his DNA and Usually, the way these things worked was that until they had probable reason to suspect that a serial killer was involved, they wouldn't run the DNA because it cost a lot of money, which many p- 
police departments did not have the financing for. Again, it wasn't like it is today where a lot of stock was put into DNA evidence, pretty much meaning if they find your DNA, you're guilty. Back then, police would still look for circumstantial evidence to link a perpetrator to the crime, as well as looking for witnesses who may have seen something or someone that they thought was suspicious. I think it's kind of interesting as far as Lee's crimes go is that there's really a three to four month window where he's cooling off in between these first two crimes and we see this pattern repeated again when on May 31st of 2002 Charlotte Murray Pace was murdered. She was a graduate of LSU, that's Louisiana State University, and she had been stabbed over 80 times inside of the apartment that she shared with a roommate. Police found defensive wounds on the victim's hands and arms, which led them to conclude that Pace had attempted to fight her attacker off. Again, as with the two previous homicides, Pace was raped as well, and police were able to collect DNA evidence. On July 9th of 2002, a woman by the name of Diane Alexander was assaulted in her home in St. Martin Parish. Now, apparently, the perpetrator just walked into her home as though he lived there. The man then began to beat Alexander before attempting to rape her. To the best of law enforcement's knowledge, Diane Alexander is the only known surviving victim of Tarek Todd Lee. Alexander's son walked into the house during the commission of the assault, which spooked Lee, who took off running from the house. Now, Alexander's son actually gave chase and was able to provide police with a description of both the perpetrator and the vehicle that he took off in. Diane Alexander had strangulation marks around her throat as the perpetrator apparently tried to strangle her to death with a telephone cord along with stabbing her. So Diane Alexander ended up going into the hospital naturally and after being in For roughly five days, she was eventually able to provide police with a description of her assailant. And through this description, police were able to create a composite sketch of the man that they were looking for. At some point during this period, the Baton Rouge police went public with the information that they had as to Alexander's attacker. 
And upon hearing of this, police in another jurisdiction, the town of Zachary, they recognized the man and provided police with his information because they had recently spoken with the man in regards to a peeping Tom incident. It's worth noting that the police in Zachary had Derek Todd Lee's DNA evidence on file due to the another incident where Lee was suspected of being involved in a murder the previous year. Now, there's conflicting reports on this. Some state that they police in Baton Rouge were given this DNA fairly quickly and that they were able to match it to the man who was committing crimes in their city while others state that it was quite a while after the fact that the Zachary Police Department turned over the DNA to the Baton Rouge Police Department. Either way, at this period of time, it took quite a while to get back the results from DNA. So even if the Zachary Police Department had turned it over immediately following Alexander's assault, it still would have been five to nine months before they got back any information regarding it. Three days later, on July 12, 2002, 44-year-old Pam Kinnamore was inside of her home when a man approached it. Pam was kidnapped from her home, taken elsewhere where she was beaten, raped, and murdered. Police only became aware of Pam's case when her husband arrived home and found blood in their bedroom and also discovered that the room itself was in disarray. He contacted the police who came over and began their investigation and what they noted was that there was no sign of forced entry into the home. That Pam's cell phone and purse were missing along with her house keys. On July 15th, a survey crew found Pam's body just south of the Whiskey Bay exit on I-10, and it was noted that Pam had defensive wounds on her arms and hands, and that the DNA collected from her body matched that as what was found in prior killings. Again, we see this three to four month cooling off period in between the killer's murders starting out in September of the previous year, moving into January and then May, and now here we are in July, and we have one failed murder attempt, and two, three days later, a successful attempt. In October of 2002, the FBI produced a 
profile of the suspected killer, and it was noted in the profile that the man that they were looking for was a white male, which is important because Lee would later use this in in an attempt to get his convictions thrown out. The reason that the FBI later gave for giving this information was the race of the victims as well as their location. Again, we're not talking about the slums. These individuals all lived in fairly upscale neighborhoods, and it was thought at the time that the perpetrator had to be someone who was comfortable in those neighborhoods and would not arouse suspicion by being seen there. My own personal belief with profiles has always been that they are a useful tool, but that law enforcement should not treat them as though they were the gospel word, because more often than not, this case is an example, another case being that of the Green River Killer, profiles can be very far off the mark. Yes, a number of them can be, you know, dead on, but that always isn't the case. So law enforcement should take what they are given with a grain of salt and realize that the individuals who are preparing these are only human and are therefore capable of making mistakes. But we see it time and time again where you have law enforcement getting a profile and that is the only thing they are focusing on. Meanwhile, the individual that they are looking for is actually not like what is written down in those sheets of paper and is someone or something else entirely. More on the case of Derek Todd Lee in just a moment. Ian Totten, best-selling author of the Blood Gods trilogy, The House of Silver Doors, and The Throwaway Girls of Olympia, comes a new tale of psychological horror. Maggie, the name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand, and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night, or how she had danced in the flames of a burning home. Maggie, who was she, and why did one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers, quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, Carl felt haunted by her visage, even as the rogue reporter, George Murphy, told him of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie, hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. 
the real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, coming November 30th, 2021, in paperback, hardcover, and ebook, only from Corpse Comics Publishing. We are back. Still got my coffee, still got my cigarettes. Let's keep on looking into the life of Derek Todd. After the FBI released its erroneous profile, naturally the people in and around Baton Rouge began jumping at shadows and reporting individuals who the police had to look into. This further allowed Lee to slide under the radar and continue with his killings. And on November 21st, 2002, he struck again. Trishina Dean Combe, a 23-year-old woman, was kidnapped her home in Lafayette. Now, Trishina was different from previous victims in that she is one of the only known African-American women who were victims of Derek Todd Lee. Before I go any further, I do want to point out that there is some argument as to where Trishina was actually kidnapped from. Some articles that you will come across state that she was kidnapped from her home, while others that she was actually out looking at her mother's grave at the time of her disappearance. And I point this out because Trishina's car, purse, and keys were all found near her mother's grave. I don't mean they were on top of it or actually you know, even in the cemetery, but they were in the general vicinity of her mother's grave, which leads many to believe that she may have, in fact, been visiting her mother's grave at the time that she was attacked. Now, three days later, on November 24th, Trishina's body was found in woods near Scott, Louisiana, by a group of hunters she was nude and it was found to have been bludgeoned to death about the head. There was also evident signs of rape and semen was recovered from her body. This semen was linked to a number of the cases and police noted that not only was she the first African-American victim, but she was also the first known victim to die outside of Baton Rouge proper. As with the other crimes, police canvassed the area trying to find who could have been responsible or if anybody had seen anyone. And again, they got the normal mix of people saying that they had some in mind who may have been responsible. A number of people said that it was a black man, a number said that it was a white man. But again, these roads failed to pan out. On March 3rd, 2003, Carrie Lynn Yoder, 
a 26-year-old college student went missing from her Louisiana State University apartment. The time given for her kidnapping is fairly wide, with estimates ranging between 6 p.m. and 12 a.m. So that's a very long window to try and look into and narrow down when she may actually have gone missing. Especially on or near a college campus where you have so many people being active, it's very difficult to pinpoint one individual, especially over such an expanse of time, as possibly being a person of interest. On March 13th, Carrie Yoder's body was found in Whiskey Bay. This is near where Pam Kinnamore's body had been found, and she, like so many of the others, had been beaten, raped, and strangled. And when police talked about this particular case, they threw out there that they believed that the young woman's body had been thrown off of a nearby bridge before coming to rest where it was discovered. This is the last known murder to have been committed by Derek Todd Lee. And I say that because by this point, the police were starting to suspect that not only was their profile wrong, but also that the individual that they were looking for might in fact be known to them. If you'll recall, the police in the Zachary Police Department had supplied to the Baton Rouge police at some point information on a man whom they had arrested for being involved with a peeping Tom incident and also who had been investigated on charges of murder. And part of this information was DNA evidence. And I throw that out there because there are some reports out there that Lee actually gave the police his DNA following this murder, which is something I don't believe actually happened. I suspect more likely than not the evidence that they got from the Zachary Police Department is the DNA evidence that was used to not only identify the man responsible, but link all of these various murders together. On May 5th of 2003, the Baton Rouge Police Department announced that they had a suspect who they were looking for, and that this suspect's DNA matched that that was pulled off of Carrie Lynn Yotter's body. It's interesting that the police waited 21 days before issuing a arrest warrant for Derek Todd Lee. And part of this is the fact that they went out looking for Lee and were unable to locate him at which point they issued an arrest warrant and put it out on the wire that they were looking for him in connection with this series of murders. The following day, May 27th, he was arrested 
in Atlanta by the Atlanta Police Department's Fugitive Squad. Lee wavered his right to an extradition hearing and was eventually brought back to Baton Rouge. Before we get into the fallout from his arrest, however, let's look at Derek Todd Lee. Derek Todd Lee was born November 5th, 1968 in St. Francisville, Louisiana. Lee was raised by his mother and had 13 siblings and half-siblings. And it was noted by people in the area that he grew up with that Lee was not a particularly bright child and tended to be a loner. Even still, he was also known to be a very outgoing and charming young man. I have read a number of different accounts that Lee's father, who was a known alcoholic, uh, left the family home shortly after Lee was born. Just as I have read that there was some pretty horrific abuse going on on inside of Lee's home. That's what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode where there are some people who like to try and paint Derek Todd Lee with this victim's brush that he was a the product of his environment and that the crimes he would later commit are directly tied into the what happened to him in his youth. I personally don't believe that nurture or a lack thereof necessarily leads someone down the path of becoming a serial murderer. Uh, That's an argument for another time, the whole nature versus nurture idea. And in Lee's case, there is enough evidence to show that he was well on his way towards being an offender of some type from a fairly young age. A number of people who knew Lee as a child remarked that he was known in their neighborhood as being a voyeur and someone who would peep through women's windows. Not only that, Lee was arrested for peeping through women's windows numerous times throughout his adolescence and adulthood. He was also arrested on charges of stalking and burglary. So it seems that Lee would, you know, find a woman he was interested in, look through her windows a number of times, and at least on a few occasions, he got up the gall to go inside the individual's apartment. And either he, you know, didn't make his presence known, or the intended victim wasn't home, and then Lee would burgle the house before leaving. Lee was something of a ladies' man. In fact, it's known that he had at least a few children, one of which was a son who was later arrested in the murder of a teenager. He worked various odd jobs when he bothered to work at all and was 
known to talk his way into women's lives. In fact, that was one of the things that stands out most about Lee, is that he was one of these individuals who do not recognize boundaries that others may set. Lee was known for just walking into people's homes and basically making himself at home in their house. And this was how he gained access to most of his victims, either by feigning to need some sort of help from the intended victim and going up to their door to talk to them, such as his car had broken down and he needed to use their phone, or by literally simply walking into their house and striking up a conversation with them. So just imagine that you're sitting in your kitchen and all of a sudden some guy just comes sauntering into your house and strikes up a conversation like you've been friends for years. There are countless stories of Lee doing just that type of thing or approaching women outside of their homes or apartments and striking up a conversation with them only to later walk into their houses unannounced. Now, we don't have any evidence that he assaulted these particular women, but the fact that he did it shows that he was indeed capable of doing such actions and really gives you an idea as to how he operated. Further shed light on Derek Todd Lee's personality, he is known to have severely beaten one of his many girlfriends, and he in fact threatened to kill the woman, yet she refused to press charges or to even leave him. Now, all of this is known. There were was an urban legend concerning Lee that he would use the uh, tape sounds of a baby crying in order to lure his victims to the door or to divert their attention. This was found to be factually inaccurate and actually came from a few crime drama television shows where Lee's case was the basis for the crimes being depicted. After being returned to Louisiana, Lee's defense ordered a battery of different psychological evaluations, including IQ tests, with the idea that they were going to try and get him found unfit to stand trial, as it was known that Lee did not have a very high IQ, with a number of different tests showing that he had scored below 65 69 being the cutoff point, after which an individual is classified as mentally retarded. Despite these findings, however, Lee was brought to trial. On August 10th of 2004, Lee was convicted of the second-degree murder of Geraldine DeSoto, 
on October 13th of 2004, Lee was found guilty in the first degree of the murder of Charlotte Murray Pace. And for this particular crime, he was sentenced to death. Obviously, Lee filed appeal after appeal after appeal in these two convictions, you know, protesting his innocence. On January 16th of 2016, Lee was rushed to a nearby hospital for an an unreported medical condition. On January 21st, Lee died just before 9 a.m. while he was receiving medical attention at the age of 47. It was later confirmed that Derek Todd Lee had died from heart disease. Along with the known murders that Lee was linked to through DNA evidence, there are a couple of other ones that he is suspected of having been involved in. A woman by the name of Connie Warner went missing from her home in 1992, and weeks later her body was found nude in a ditch. The woman's boyfriend's daughter, who we're going to call Mary just for simplicity, stated that she saw an individual prowling around Connie's home in the days before her disappearance, and the description that she gave would later be found to match that of Derek Todd Lee. And apparently, at least according to some reports, Lee was considered a viable suspect in this particular crime. Another case he's also suspected in was the attack of a couple inside of their car in a Zachary graveyard in 1993. Now, supposedly, the woman who was in the car later picked Lee out of a police lineup, although Apparently, the statute of limitations had expired on the case, and the police were unable to move forward with charges. Another case that he is a suspect in is the 1998 kidnapping and murder of 28-year-old Randy Mebrewer, who vanished from her home. Although I have seen no actual evidence listing that she was in fact found or that you know Lee's DNA or anything having to do with him was discovered at the home. That is it for the death cast this week. Again, I'd like to thank you for joining me as I look at the life and crimes of the Baton Rouge serial killer, Derek Todd Lee. Remember, if you'd like to sign up for the mailing list, go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com, sign up, and while you're there, click on the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee, help out with the production of the show. Until next week, the Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid. Ian Totten, best-selling author of the Blood Gods trilogy, The House of Silver Doors, and The Throwaway Girls of Olympia.
becomes a new tale of psychological horror. Maggie, the name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Chaplansky's mind like a brand, and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night, or how she had danced in the flames of a burning home. Maggie, who was she, and why did one in Kaya's crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers, quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, Carl felt haunted by her visage, even as the rogue reporter George Murphy told him of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie, hers was a crime begging to be solved and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, coming November 30th, 2021, in paperback, hardcover, and e-book, only from Corpse Creek Publishing.